didn't want to approve it. Mr. Breaker, you better be absolutely candid with us here tonight. We need some answers and we need them now. Hear this, gentlemen. If any ships or aircraft approach within 100 miles, we will kill the crew and retaliate with everything in the ship's arsenal. Bill, this is Tom. What's going on? Hi, Tom. You know what's going on. I have 32 tomahawks under my thumb, and the only thing you can do about it is alert the media. You don't have the launch codes. Oh, uh, let me take a wild guess. Uh, 5660499780? This is insane. Oh, be careful with that word, Tom, please. Mr. Stranix, this is Admiral Bates speaking. Would you please tell us why the hell you're doing this? Hi, Admiral. Six months ago, your boy Tom Breaker canceled Operation Cleopatra, and shortly thereafter, two young men from Langley showed up in Miami, tried to cancel me along with it. Now, you received each man's right forefinger in the mail, didn't you, Tom? Tom? Yes, I did. Did you expect us to wait in Miami for you to come back and try again? Look, Bill, um... I know things are a little... <clears throat> are a little chaotic for you right now. Chaotic? Wake up, Tom! You know, and I know, that chaos and bedlam are consuming the entire world. UV light waves are only the beginning, Tom. We have an inch of topsoil left. Topsoil? This sexually transmitted diseases, deforestation, irreversibly progressive depletion of the global gene pool. It all adds up to oblivion, pal. Governments will fall. Anarchies will reign. It's a brave new world. Bill. What are you planning to do? Do you realize, Tom, that whatever I do is inevitable? Can we agree on that? Well, not necessarily. Well, oh, see, there you go, Tom. See, you can't argue with me here or negotiate or attempt any chicken shit psychological ploy. You have to reconsider your entire philosophy. All right, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, whatever you decide to do is inevitable. Now, look at my life, Tom. The life you people tried to take. There was Annapolis, it was Vietnam, there was war college, so on. You know, I missed the 60s, and I truly believe that if I could have been there to make my contribution, everything would have worked out fine. Look, Bill, if this is about reliving the 60s, you can forget about it, buddy. The movement is dead. Yes, of course, hence the name. Movement, it moves a certain distance, then it stops, you see? A revolution gets its name by always coming back around in your face. You tried to kill me, you son of a bitch. So welcome to the revolution. There's more to follow. I'll stay in touch. I had a dream about this place. about Danny Casolaro in uh, 1991. Where's his head up? Late summer, not yet September 1991. It's morbid, I suppose, but it's true that Danny Casolaro is 
accelerating seemingly towards an instance uh, in his life, the last instance, um, where all he can see is the asbestos bathroom ceiling of the room that, you know, will be where he dies in West Virginia. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about how things are kind of ambiguous with Danny's life at this time. There's moments of, you know, triumph, I guess. Like he seems to be making pretty good progress with his book and he seems to be tracking down plenty of leads and cultivating plenty of sources. And at the same time, he's finding that money is tight. He's getting deeper and deeper in debt to not just uh, the bank, but also to loved ones and to friends as well. Uh, you gave me the a breakdown, didn't you, of, of how much money he actually earned out by this point? At least what what I was able to uncover so far, and this was brought this was brought up in drafts of Justice Department reports and then removed out of later drafts. Um, but essentially, Danny was every two or three months borrowing money from his brother and his sister. And these are not small amounts of money either. No, it was, I think it was $10,000 from his sister. And I, I looked it up again, I mean, it was $35,000 from his brother. And these were serious enough that they were promissory notes issued. Uh, so I guess to put a pin into some of his motivations, um, it's not like these were values, at least on the face of it, that were just going to be forgiven. He's getting into six figures worth of debt. In fact, he wrote a letter to Herb Carlitz, who was his literary agent. This is April 20th, 1991. And it opens with, Dear Herb, I am enclosing the update you requested on my trip to Seattle, but I must explain how much deeper in debt I am. Every month that goes by without income puts another $4,500 or so on my liability, just keeping my family and myself alive. On top of that, my mortgage, which is now up to $300,000, is scheduled for final payment in September of 91. If I could hit it with a major payment, say a third, and justify continuing income, I'll probably be okay because I'll be able to get another mortgage. But despite all of this, he does have these incredibly big ambitions for this project, doesn't he? The octopus seems to be growing. Yes, it's it's both a, a book and a movie. In fact, Danny says in this letter that he wrote to his agent, quote, I understand from Danny Sheehan at the Christic Institute here in Washington, D.C., that Oliver Stone has expressed interest in the subject matter. Yes. Sheehan has defended publication of the Pentagon Papers, won the suit for the Karen Silkwood case, and is today pursuing the Lepenka lawsuit, now before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta, exposing the Contra cocaine network of former intelligence officials, Cuban exiles, and mercenaries. Several tentacles of the octopus I'm working on coincide with the Christic Institute's investigation and lawsuit. I also understand that Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, and Bonnie Raitt put on a concert for the Christic Institute in recent months. I bring these items up to let you know that I think there's real interest in this investigative effort that could multiply in the months ahead. Big ambitions. Um, and if he couldn't get a film adaptation, he was looking for a documentary as well. He requested that Carlitz place a screenwriter with him while he was on his travels so that the screenwriter could begin taking notes to, I take it Danny con like considered himself the main character in any potential film adaptation of this. 
I just I think so. That makes sense. And, and it also, I guess, it kind of ties in with one of the efforts uh, you know, along the way to get this material published was speaking with uh, Time Magazine. And Time Magazine, they wouldn't accept anything. I think it was they weren't going to take anything with Danny as, as the main author. But if Danny would work with one of their staff writers, they would have serialized something. But Danny didn't want Danny didn't want to do that. See, that's that seems genuinely insane to me because they just had um, a massive success with their expose of BCCI. So I'm surprised that Danny wouldn't want some of that star power to rub off on him. But I guess he considered this his baby or something. He wanted to hit it big, and this and that wasn't going to be um, big enough. Now, something that also is brought up is is he is given advice by literary agents of. Look, you know, if this if this story is too big, um, take a smaller bite and you know write something smaller, and then you know you can always tell the, the full story later. Yeah, you know? and and him not wanting to do that, you know, he wanted to do the book and the movie, you know, to go to have you know the big big splash. You can understand why literary agents and. Um and editors of like Time Magazine were a little bit antsy about the the scale of his ambition here because I've got a uh, proposal that he wrote for the Octopus book and he opens it with this. This is the story of eight men whose real-life impossible mission intrigues have dominated key events that span the globe for nearly half a century. They are the men who make up the octopus. Now, if you are just some, you know, time editor or something, and you get hit with a, a writer that you're not really familiar with, telling you that they have solved it, that, that they can link everything that's happened over the last 50 years to eight key guys, it's understandable why they might want somebody else, you know, riding shotgun with you just to, you know, keep an eye on you and make sure that you stay grounded, because that's quite a, a big claim. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that, that's quite a big claim, and almost like it's that's that sounds like an expensive claim. Yeah. Why didn't he take some? You know, why didn't he take some of this? Take some of these opportunities, or or pursue some of these smaller scale things? Um, and I think that that again that goes into he he was chasing success his entire career, and he has referenced himself to in you know described himself to others as being the black sheep of the family. Um, his dad was a, a successful doctor. His brother was a successful doctor. Uh, they wanted, you know, he wanted Danny Castellaro to go to medical school. He didn't, you know, he wanted to pursue this career in writing and songwriting, but he really, you know, never, never, you know, never went far with those things. The first time that he really, really found success in his career was his period of time with the uh, Computer Age magazine. But that ended in tears. Um, and as, as I've, I've done more reading this, it, you know, I'd have to uncover some, some of the, the deeper details, but it seemed that due to some financial pressure, Danny essentially had to sell out. Um, and, he was, and he was ripped off. Um, so I think to a degree, you know, him personally, he didn't want to do the small, th- I mean, almost he had already tried that and that didn't work, you know, in his life. He wanted the big thing, the big success fit thing so that he could be stand shoulder to shoulder with his brother 
as as a professional success. As a real person, I suppose. He needed Danny Castellaro needed the money. You know, he maybe needed you know more money than could have come out of a collaboration with a Time staff writer. Um, you know, he mentions again he's got a burn rate of forty five hundred dollars a month, and that's on top of him having a mortgage balloon payment due. Um, it's three hundred thousand dollars. He says, "I also I've also read elsewhere that the balloon payment, um, and by balloon payment it means it's all the money's due right then and there. You know, either the balloon goes up or it doesn't, and the balloon needs to be loaded with all the money." Um, and, you know, he was going to have to come up with $173,000 at least, like at once, you know, you know, to go into the mortgage office and, and put the money on the counter. And you also have to factor in as well. So this, yeah, like you say, this $4,500 is just basically keeping his family and himself alive. That isn't including what he was spending on travel. Um, don't forget that he spent, I think it was 10 days working pro bono for Michael Reconosciuto as a, uh, a trial investigator before he began to get disillusioned with Reconosciuto. So yeah, Danny's money situation is precarious to say the least right now. And this has been an expensive investigation. In the, in the letter that we mentioned earlier, uh, the April 20th letter to, to his literary agent, um, Danny sketches out the last leg really of his research and I think he ended up going on, he ended up doing some of these things, but essentially he was, you know, he died before he could complete it. And if this is indicative of his earlier uh, investigative efforts, it is an expensive investigation. It is spending literal weeks um, in foreign countries, in foreign lands, a lot of plane fare a lot of, which means a lot of hotel bills, a lot of restaurant meals. This is, you would definitely need, I mean, you're, you're going to have to have plenty of money for this, or hopefully a, you know, an understanding publisher who will give you a big expense account. Yeah. And I mean, I think that what I'm hoping to do with tonight's installment is illustrate, partly at least, illustrate this this issue of the expenses and the travel expenses because Danny's story keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and what we're going to find tonight is he begins chasing a thread that he thinks is kind of like a funnel that's narrowing down to a place in the desert. And what he doesn't realize is that everything he's going to uncover there will explode outwards and become an even more complicated, tangled mess uh, than that which he's already dealing with. If I can, um, just some some additional motivations. Um, so something to think about as as we we tell the story that we're telling and we 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 recount the the stages on this journey is that again, Danny Castellaro isn't just doing this investigation, doing this work um, because he's a conspiracy theory researcher, you know, or just for fun. To make that splash, to release that book, to to have that screenplay, um, he needs a coherent story to tell, and so he is going out there, talking to these people, getting these, you know, making these connections, 
try and trying to come up with more than just a a pile of interview notes, but to come out with something that can be packaged up and laid before really the public and understood. Oliver Stern. So I guess this is where we get to Robert Booth Nichols. And the way he comes into this story is something that I think has vexed both of us, hasn't it? <laughs> Just trying to figure out how the fuck he turns up in this story. You know, maybe this is a thinking error on my part or not. But I think that the the chain of who was introduced to who, you know, how people got in contact with each other, who contacted who first, um, that that does that's an important thing in how the wider narrative unfolds, you know. Yeah, I am totally in agreement about that. So the best we've been able to lay this out, uh, this is from the, from Judge Boer's report into all of this. He says, quote, As best we can determine, Reconosciuto's first statements about promise were made in the spring of 1990, uh, on May 10th, 1990. A reporter for one of Lyndon LaRouche's publications called William and Nancy Hamilton. The reporter told the Hamiltons that a month earlier, Reconosciuto had told him, the reporter, that the Inslaw mess at the Justice Department is related to a decision by Ronald Reagan to provide a financial reward to L. Bryan for an intelligence contribution to the 1980 election. The reporter then completed a conference call and introduced the Hamiltons directly to Reconosciuto. So we've got that down. We're not sure. I'm not sure how Robert Booth Nichols turns up in this. The possibilities are that Michael Reconosciuto introduces the Hamiltons to him. Um, and then Danny pursues it that way, or that Robert Booth Nichols approached the Hamiltons uh, himself off his own back, or that Danny turned up Robert Booth Nichols' name during the course of his own investigation, and, and that's how he enters the story. What's your most solid take on that? So we know that Michael Reconosciuto, again, Danny Casalero, meets with Michael Reconosciuto a number of times, and Michael Reconosciuto is a, a font of stories and people. And Michael Reconosciuto gave Danny essentially a phone book, you know, full of names and places and events. Um, so I don't, I guess I don't want it to kind of be thought as like, Geez, Michael Reconosciuto just wrote one name on a piece of paper and slid it across the counter. You know, no, Michael Reconosciuto gave Danny 30 names. Yeah, as we're going to see, to be fair. <laughs> but what you also have is Michael Reconosciuto telling the Hamiltons that the person who knew more was um, Robert Booth Nichols. And the Hamiltons are trying independently at, you know, at, of all of this. Because again, something to, to remember, you know, consistent remember in this mind is that the Hamiltons are still out there running around trying to get redressed through the legal system and trying to do their own investigation. Is that they are actually trying to get in contact with Robert Booth Nichols. And interestingly, they don't succeed. Um, so did the Hamiltons give Danny Casalero, Robert Booth Nichols's phone number? Did Michael Reconosciuto give, you know, uh, Danny Casalero, Robert Booth Nichols's phone number? Because we, we know in one of the documents that their first contact was over the phone, 
was was Danny Casalero calling Robert Booth Nichols. Well, at least that's that's according to Robert Booth Nichols. Something else as well I just want to um, get in here is there will be another guy with the surname of Nichols who is going to pop up later in this episode. So uh, I'm going to try and refer to Robert Booth Nichols as RBN from now on just to avoid confusion. But I, I will probably slip up at some point and um, call him Robert Booth Nichols. I guess an answer to your to your to the to the question of of you know who knew what when is again Danny Casalero is getting these names, and Danny Casalero has other contacts in the securities uh, uh, establishment in the government, things like that, and so he is following up with those contacts about the people that he is hearing about. And again, we know this from one of the Justice Department documents, and I find it um, credible because the Justice Department in kind of like an uncharacteristic or uh, uh, show of, you know, personality, um, they, they are getting, they get, essentially they, they care enough to get mad in the, te- in, in the, in the text of the report. They say that Danny Casalero was talking to these other people to talking um, to people in the, you know, particularly in the police services, who were telling Danny Casalero about ongoing investigations and unindicted and and crimes that Robert Booth Nichols had not yet been indicted for, um, or or may be indicted for, and that Danny Casalero was then folding these into his other later research, um, and that the Justice Department was 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 kind of pissed off that people within the justice services told Danny Casalero these rather sensitive things. Danny won't meet Robert Booth Nichols, RBN. He won't meet RBN until July of 1991. But there's been a long, for lack of a better term, there's been a long courtship uh, over the previous few months. I think it was, the was it the summer before? It was shortly after Danny himself first began looking into the Inslaw case that he starts to contact um, RBN. And yes, exactly. Yeah. And and unlike the Hamiltons, Robert Booth Nichols returns Danny Casalero's phone calls. And it's a lot of phone calls. Uh, we have a summary, I believe, in the final seven or ten days of July 1991. Um Danny Casalero is speaking with Robert Booth Nichols. Of course, this is all long distance. Uh, you know, for literally an hour to two hours or more, I'd say a night, but really all these calls were taking place early in the morning. So, again, Robert Booth Nichols is returning Danny Casalero's phone calls and talking a lot. Robert Booth Nichols won't talk to the Hamiltons, but he will talk to Danny. This is more than likely because RBN is, you know, connected to a lot of serious people. But this also gets at something else that we've been talking around and it has been mentioned in other places before, which is, and it's something we should consider for this episode, I think, which is the very real possibility that Michael Reconosciuto and RBN, uh, either separately or in cahoots with each other, were running some sort of swindle here some kind of scam i don't know what it would have been precisely but it is possible and i'll explain why with rbn in particular a lot later in this episode however 
Could have been to make money, could have been to gain immunity from prosecution. They could have been using Danny as a way to settle personal beef that they had with each other or beef that they had with other operatives in the underworld. So we are going to lay the story out for you um, as they told it to Danny. And we're going to add our own you know, commentary and fact-checking where appropriate. But keep in mind that even if both Michael Reconosciuto and RBN were completely full of shit, Danny followed their tip-offs into a very real secret city that was full of people who didn't want him looking into their business. Maddening ambiguity is a kind of part and parcel of this story. So it's something we'll never be able to confirm definitively. But I do think that even if they were lying, what they had to tell Danny caused very real um, upset in the underworld. Just to, to step back just a bit to some of the, you know, what were the motivations? Was this some sort of swindle? Again, we know that Michael Reconosuto had told the Hamiltons, look, you need to, you need to, co- you need to contact um, Robert Booth Nichols. The Hamiltons then tried to reach out to Robert Booth Nichols and are unsuccessful. So you have then Danny Casalero doing his sort of thing. He eventually is successful in reaching uh, Robert Booth Nichols. And he then is telling the Hamiltons after his calls that, oh, yeah, yeah, I was able to get in touch with Robert Booth Nichols. And he had some insights into promise. Which is which is an interesting thing to say, um, because it's it's Robert Booth Nichols really isn't connected to the wider promised narrative. He's a guy who Michael Reconosuto knows. Essentially, we can kind of explain Michael Reconosuto's involvement with the promised software. You know, assuming that his affidavit is correct, Michael Reconosuto is the guy that did some of these early modification work. Well, then what was what was um, Robert Booth Nichols doing? But we know that, again, at some point between, uh, I have it written down, April and August, um, and I'm not, and this has to be then of 1991, the Hamiltons finally actually do get in touch with Robert Booth Nichols, and they talk a lot. Um, and Robert Booth Nichols has uh, a lot to say. But the most important thing that he says is that he needs uh, $25,000. $25,000 seems to be a recurring figure with him because he also offered to buy a $25,000 stake in Danny's house when Danny confided to him that he was having money problems. Um, That's interesting. $25,000 exactly. Mm -hmm. On the nose. And the Hamiltons are essentially saying, well, geez, can you do, can you, uh, can you get the information and then we'll give you the money? Their antenna are, are waving around pretty hard at that point when this guy's trying to hit him up for 25K. Um, and as far as I know, they don't end up paying Robert Booth Nichols because they probably then, they cease to find him credible or, or at least think that paying this, this really this stranger $25,000 might not actually get them any closer to justice. Yeah. What's all the stranger about why he needs $25,000 is that Robert Booth Nichols also moonlighted as an actor and he had a minor role as Paris Island recruit number two in Full Metal Jacket. 
And he also had a role as Colonel Sarnak in Under Siege, the uh, the Steven Seagal vehicle. So this is being filmed, I would presume, in 1991. So Robert Booth Nichols is getting paid for that. And that comes out in 1992. And yet here he is asking for $25,000 from the Hamiltons. I suppose it's, you know, if you think you can make the money, why not ask? You know, the worst they can say is no. Mm-hmm. And as far as we know, they did. <laughs> We should probably look a bit more at the relationship between Michael Riconosciuto and Robert Booth Nichols. So they go back to the 1960s. They first met in 1967. And back then, RBN was a business partner of Marshall Riconosciuto, who is Michael Riconosciuto's dad. We don't know exactly what the business connection was, but we do know that RBN and Rico Jr. had a falling out over money in the early 80s. We'll get into exactly what that was uh, in a moment. So remember that Marshall Riconosciuto is chummed in with some really serious guys. So there's W. Patrick Moriarty, uh, there's Richard Nixon. He was a uh, business associates with him. And then, you know, this nightmare tangle of dark finance that he's connected to as well, not just in California, but all over America and, and Europe. Moriarty himself is an extremely interesting guy. He ran a fireworks company for a time and Marshall Riconosciuto was his friend as well as his business partner. Now Moriarty and his associates laundered more than $260,000 in campaign funds to California political figures between 1980 and 1983, according to research by the Los Angeles Times. Most of the money was spent during 1981 and 1982 when Moriarty sponsored a bill in the legislature to prevent local governments from banning the types of fireworks sold by his companies. He operated a system of kickbacks and extortion and sexual blackmail to bring California politicians in line and influence policy favorable to his business interests, you know. And in researching Moriarty, Danny discovered that he'd been subpoenaed to testify at the trial of one Colonel Bo 
Grits. Grits had been charged for using a false passport. Now, this Grits character, not to get off on a tangent, but this Grits character is very interesting. He was a legit colonel, and he also ran as vice president for the Populist Party in 1988. He was big on survivalism and end times stuff. He's been accused of, you know, far-right neo-fascist sympathies. Moriarty had previously hired Grits uh, to, as he claimed, help set up oil ventures in China, Singapore, and parts of Asia. And coincidentally or not, these are all connected to CIA heroin trafficking. And Danny was planning to head out that way to speak to local dope warlords himself. Bo Grits has also investigated links between the Golden Triangle heroin trade and the CIA. And he says that he has tape of Kun Sa, the heroin warlord, naming high-ranking Reagan admin officials as being directly involved in dope trafficking from the 1950s right up through the end of the 1980s. And he forged links with the Christic Institute. So, you know, just like Danny had, and much like Danny, he had a theory that the same handful of high-level political intelligence operatives had been secretly orchestrating huge um, corrupt operations that had affected the course of American history ever since the end of World War II, you know. And Moriarty had at one time been an investor in Marshall Reconosciuto's Hercules Research Corporation. Michael Reconosciuto had been co-owner with Pops. And the plan had been to invent a revolutionary new power supply, but all they really managed to come up with in the end were slightly more efficient power packs or something like that. Those power packs, keep them in mind because they are going to pop up again later in this episode. But anyway, yeah, Moriarty was convicted and sent down for seven years in 1986 for bribery and corruption. Danny makes a note of, you know, Bo Gritz, the Moriarty connection, and he keeps talking to RBN. We've got his ties to Marshall Reconosciuto and Moriarty, but his links also go much further. We've got his business connection with a guy called Eugene Giacinto. Now, Giacinto was a board member of Meridian Arms Corporation, which Robert Booth Nichols owned. Meridian Arms was this experimental weapons firm that Michael Reconosciuto did work for on a freelance basis in the 70s. And Reconosciuto was also some kind of investor in it. And this is what those two fell out over. Uh, as the 70s turned into the 80s. Now, Giacinto was an associate of John Gotti, the Gambino family boss. And Giacinto was also a vice president at MCA. And Gambino family has already appeared in this series because of the business ties between Edwin Meese and General Vito Castellano, who was Paul Castellano's first cousin. Paul was killed by John Gotti hitmen so that John Gotti could take over the family. Uh, I think we discussed that in Casino as well. Now, Giacinto is fired in 1988 for defrauding MCA and channeling the money to the Buffalino crime family. Nichols had more direct mafia connections than that, um, but we'll get to that in a second. So Nichols also sat on the board of directors at First International Development Corporation, and this was supposedly a firm that served as a secret construction contractor for the CIA and other directors include Clint Murchison Jr. 
the son of Clint Murchison Sr. You'll remember the Murchisons from the American tabloid series, um, Oil Cowboys, who forged deep links to the CIA, the FBI, Hollywood, the mob, and the Bush family, as well as, you know, the Eastern establishment. A number of threads are going to start connecting as we go along here. Um, I guess without meaning to, we've actually been doing, I guess, what they call long-term storytelling here. Um, there's another guy called Francis Fox. Fox had been chief aviation officer at Summa Corporation. The big daddy at FIDCO, though, is Robert freaking Mayhew. Now, we've covered Mayhew before. He was a mob associate, CIA asset. He connected to the anti-Castro operations of the 1960s. He'd also served as a liaison between the syndicate and Langley. He was also Howard Hughes's bagman and ran Summa Corporation as Hughes's proxy because Summa had, of course, at one time been known as the Hughes Tool Company. Now, Booth Nichols had a lot of stories to tell to Bill Hamilton, to Danny Casalaro, to whoever listened. You know, he talked about covert ops in Nigeria, in Vietnam, South America, South Africa, Western Europe, Australia, you name it. He talked about his multiple jobs as gun trafficker, money launderer for the agency and the syndicate, shakedown artist for politicians. He was a man who very much wanted people to ask him about his mysterious comings and goings. And if they didn't ask, he seemed ready and willing to volunteer the information anyway. Now, sussing out how legit his stories are is as tricky as you would expect, you know. Bill Hamilton believed some of what he heard from RBN, but this was mostly the stuff that backed up Bill Hamilton's own case against, you know, the US government. Uh, intriguingly, Robert Mayhew said that RBN was full of shit, but then, you know, part of being an effective operator is mixing nonsense in with truth, so you can't ever be pinned down on anything. Robert Mayhew knew that better than almost anybody. RBN tried to sue the LAPD in 93 for loss of earnings after an incident where he was busted for carrying a concealed pistol. Now, his gun license was revoked, and he said the negative publicity harmed Meridian's reputation and cost him financing, you know, uh, to manufacture weapons. And this is from the Los Angeles Times, 1993. The Los Angeles native, referring to RBN, who has also used the aliases Robert Summers and Robert Chabray, said he was first approached by a CIA officer while living in Hawaii in the late 1960s. Nichols testified that he could recall only the man's first name, Ken, and that Ken told him that instead of joining the US military, he could serve his country in other ways. I should point out that None of this had anything to do with RBN suing the LAPD. You know, it had no bearing on the trial whatsoever. RBN just volunteered all this information anyway. I have a theory that these guys, you know, they get tired of living in the shadows and I think they want to try and claim some measure of credit, you know, after a certain amount of time. Anyway, it goes on to say, quote, Nichols said his first assignment was to associate with a foreign female in Honolulu for two days. 
Ken then instructed him to take a job with a Hawaiian security firm and later to move to Glendale to operate a construction company. Nichols testified that he was paid no money by either firm, living instead on funds provided by Ken. Nichols said that he participated in gathering information for Ken and his associates until 1986 in nations including Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Thailand, India, Japan, Mexico, Costa Rica, Haiti, Norway, and France. So it was 1993 at this point. Danny Castellaro has been dead for two years. But, you know, inevitably, this stirred up all those old stories about um, Danny and Inslaw, uh, RBN, his supposed connections to the CIA and so on, because RBN was the one doing the stirring. Um, now, the LAPD and the DA, they had a vested interest in proving that he was a fraud, they, they never really proved that, but they did dismiss him as such, you know. The feds confirm that they considered him a key figure in the Gambino family's money laundering activity back in the 70s. And they also tied him to the Yakuza as a gun runner and an accountant. And RBN would end up suing the feds too. Um, I think it was for slander, but don't quote me on that. Now, the CIA inevitably refused to confirm or deny if he ever worked for them. This is the LA Times again, quote, Jayakinto introduced Nichols to Jack Valenti, president of the Motion Picture Association of America, and suggested that Nichols could help the industry in its effort to combat piracy abroad. In a telephone interview from Washington last week, Valenti said that he met with Jayakinto and Nichols for about 20 minutes in his room at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Uh, and then this is Valenti speaking. Nichols said he was part of the CIA, that he had done all this work in Asia, but Valenti did not hire him. Valenti says, intriguingly, my instinct was I didn't feel comfortable about some of the things he was saying. When a fellow tells you a lot of things are top secret, well, I know a lot about the CIA from my time in the White House as a special assistant to President Lyndon B. Johnson. What the fuck does that last part mean exactly? And yeah, so Booth Nichols has a lot of stories to tell, basically. He tells all of this to Danny. He talks about covert operations in Nigeria, in Vietnam, in South America, South Africa, Western Europe, Australia, you name it. He talks about multiple jobs as a gun trafficker, as a money launderer for the agency and the syndicate, as a shakedown artist for politicians. So yeah, he is a man who very much wants to play two roles. He wants to play the secret international man of mystery. And he also wants people to ask him about being a secret international man of mystery. Uh, and if they don't ask, he seems to volunteer this information anyway. Would you say that's fair? Yes, it is. Uh, again, it, it's I've out there is, is the question of why. Now, again, the answer to that can be as simple as well, because he liked hearing himself talk and he, and he liked to impress people, you know, he liked to make, ma I mean, really it's people like telling stories, you know, at least some of them do, you know, and this guy is able to tell entertaining stories and probably no one can listen to stories like a reporter who's writing a book. Yeah. Especially if you are telling them stories that seem to confirm almost every theory they, they are developing and nurturing, you know, like Danny was. Something that, that Robert Booth Nichols claims, in, and so this is, again, you need to put a little star by that, is that he felt, again, he's later explaining his involvement with Danny Casolaro 
to the investigators who are looking at Danny Casalero's death and the Inslaw and the wider Inslaw case. And he is saying that Danny Casalero was um, uh, picking his brain or using him as a sounding board. Um, and if Robert Booth Nichols didn't like those things, then it certainly didn't stop him from talking to Danny Casalero a lot. So if we accept that either of those or both are true, then it's, it's, at least it wasn't stopping Robert Booth Nichols from talking or listening for that matter. Because that's also another element here is again, is when Danny Casalero called up Robert Booth Nichols at one in the morning to talk for two and a half hours, it's not just Robert Booth Nichols who is doing the talking. And Danny Casalero is essentially, he is sending as much information along the other way as he is getting. In a way, it's like kind of this mirrors um, something we've discussed earlier about promise, about people using this database search tool and not realizing that they are telling more about themselves than they are learning. So if, for example, you are Danny Castellaro, an investigative journalist, and you are talking to a guy who has been, as we'll see, credibly accused of being a money launderer for the CIA, the Gambino family, and even the Yakuza, you are letting him know exactly how much you know every time you pick up that phone and ask him more questions. He is fully cognizant of how far along you are in the, the the chain of investigation, so to speak. Um, and yeah, I, I find that a very interesting parallel, actually, <laughs> between RBN and, and Promise. And I guess, and to tie it really back into, into our timeline, again, this is something that we know because Robert Booth Nichols ends up um, admitting it, is that in early August, um, Danny Casalero calls Robert Booth Nichols uh, for a one-hour phone call from 1.40 a.m. to 2.46 a.m. Danny Casalero probably doesn't see it like this, but he's giving an update to his case manager, you know, his handler. Danny Casalero telling Robert Booth Nichols that both that Danny Casalero was entering the last phase of his research and that he was going to finally go to the before-mentioned Cabazon Indian Reservation, which up until this point, again, everything that Danny knows about the Cabazon Indian Reservation, he knows from at a distance. Um, sometimes that distance can be relatively close. Like I believe he uh, goes to the Riverside County Sheriff's Department. Um, uh, the Cabazon Indian Reservation is in Riverside County, California, which is in Southern California. Um, Riverside County is a total shithole. Don't ever go there. No reason to go there. Danny Casalero going to the sheriff's uh, uh, department there in Riverside County, but not actually getting out to the reservation. So I, I just, I, I, again, I find it interesting that one of the things that happens just about 30 days before he dies is Danny Casalero is telling Robert Booth Nichols 
that yeah you know i'm i'm going to i'm gonna, i'm going to walk into the mouth of the beast finally and 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 my investigation is nearing its conclusion which means that essentially all the stuff that he has been told robert booth nichols and he has, and learned from robert booth nichols again because danny kessler wants to write a book and make a movie you know and tell everyone under the sun is that again? All of this stuff is going to be wrapped up into a easily digestible package, and hopefully make a whole bunch of money because it sells a whole bunch of copies. There's something quite interesting as well that happens here, which is RBN confirms something that Michael Reconosciuto had said, which is that promise was indeed supplied by Earl Bryan to Rico at the Cabazon Reservation, and it was modified there before being sold on uh, to at least the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I find this interesting because Robert Booth Nichols did have a personal connection to the reservation, and that was through his business associate, A. Robert Fry. Now, Fry was at that time the vice president of Wackenhut Services, which had partnered with the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians on this mysterious joint venture. So it's interesting to think about why was RBN giving this up at this point? Why was he copping to the fact that Promise, or to the alleged fact that Promise had been modified at the reservation and then sold on uh, illicitly? Yeah, it's, well, I guess in a way, it's Robert Booth Nichols is he is hearing essentially in in uh, an unconfirmed story. You know, a reporter's coming to him with, "Hey, this this other guy has said this thing," and all Robert Booth Nichols says is, "Oh yeah, 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 that's true." Well, yeah, I mean that that's the thing because we don't know the exact um, context, do we? Really, of how he confirmed this story, it could well have been that. Like, there's that, but but also it's. Robert Booth Nichols in that isn't copying to anything that he's done. Yeah. And I think that's that's an element there. Because again, it it's you know, Robert Booth Nichols is 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 telling stories or he's able to confirm or not confirm certain aspects. But again, I feel like Danny is telling Robert Booth Nichols, Hey, yeah, I'm going to go out for the first time to the Cabazon Ranch, and this is going to be the capstone on my investigation. And you really have in that moment, I believe, if if it hasn't cropped up, you know, before in Danny Casalero's investigation, the moment where he may actually uncover something that Robert Booth Nichols can be nailed for, and that is independent of Robert Booth Nichols saying it. So we've been talking around it. I guess we should try and find a way to attack this now, which is, I guess, the heart of this episode, which is the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, or the Cabazon Reservation, at least. Now, Ben, could you just break down this thing that Michael Reconosciuto says in his affidavit, which is, because the the question, I think, for non-American listeners would be, why use the Cabazon Reservation as the site of this promise modification program why would wackenhut be interested in a joint venture with the the uh mission band the band of mission indians there so what reconosciuto says in his affidavit is quote 
The Cabazon Band of Indians are a sovereign nation. The sovereign immunity that is accorded the Cabazons as a consequence of this fact made it feasible to pursue on the reservation the development and or manufacture of materials whose development and or manufacture would be subject to stringent controls off the reservation. As a minority group, the Cabazon Indians also provided the Wackenhut Corporation with an enhanced ability to obtain federal contracts through the 8A Set Aside Program and in connection with government-owned contractor-operated GOCO facilities. Uh, the Wackenhut Cabazon joint venture was intended to support the needs of a number of foreign governments and forces, including forces and governments in Central America and the Middle East. The Contras in Nicaragua represented one of the most important priorities for the joint venture. So, yeah, could you just break that down for uh, non-American uh, listeners, the this issue of the sovereign nation? Okay. So I guess to compress down um, really 300 years of United States uh, Native <laughs> American relations um, into a something I can write on the back of a postcard, um, it's that the United States government did its damnedest to kill and every single Native American they could find and 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 or steal everything that these people owned that they that they could get their hands on, um, and and just about succeeded. So what is then left over? Um, and this is in part because the result of, you know, uh, just land that was not, uh, you know, land that was not just taken um, or, or things that are connected with treaties is you have reservations or set aside areas where supposedly the, the residue of, 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 of what was once a great people can continue on their particular way of existence. Naturally, that that really doesn't work when everything you've ever had has been stolen, and when everyone you know is dead, and when your your entire culture and society has been destroyed. But what it does leave behind in how United States law works is scattered across the country are little pockets, little isolated territories, um, invariably on the worst and most inaccessible and most inhospitable land. Because um, again, if you're going to force someone you don't like into an area, you're not going to give them something good, um, is you have these little, these little uh, statelets that are technically sovereign, independent, freestanding countries. So the United States within it has innumerable um, Native American bands who are technically operating like sovereign, independent, freestanding republics or nations. Now, now again, um, that that is that is a bit uh, overstatement, and you 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 get into the issue of well, geez, who is who is sovereign and who is um, and who is not? But one of the consequences of that that legal mess that is there um, that was put in place to defraud uh, the Native Americans um, is that these freestanding sovereign entities are still do have, according to them, some benefits of really like freestanding republics. Again, it's another country. And so you will have Native American bands, and this is something that is that has really occurred in the, particularly in the past decades, of as a way of trying to rebuild uh, their their society, is they will open gaming casinos 
you know, because even if it's illegal in whatever state uh, that the the reservation is located in, the reservation is still its own independent country, so it can do whatever it wants. Or in our case, let's go back to now to to Wackenhut, is that as part of federal law, Congress has set down, has has made rulings on what you can do inside the United States and what you can't do. Now, some of this can be things as familiar as, well, geez, you can't manufacture, sell, or trade controlled substances, you know, drugs. You can't run, you can't run a cocaine lab in the United States. Um, but also to some more esoteric things. Uh, like here, a, a good recent example is that um, what is called gain-of-function research in biowarfare. Mm-hmm is that that research is forbidden within the continental United States. So the solution to that, you know, to that problem of, well, geez, if you're a company and you want to do this banned research or you want to engage in manufacture that is banned in, in, by federal law, or you want to do any one of or a number of nefarious things, but still not leave the comfort of the United States is well, geez, let's go to the independent countries that are entirely contained within the United States. So again, you're whacking hot. You have a, you probably have an office in Los Angeles. You know, um, yeah, it's 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 almost it's just down the road. It's certainly a lot easier than than you know having to fly halfway around the world. Is yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna set it up in the backyard, and 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 at the same same time. Because, again, although the United States federal government took all of these things away from the, uh, the native tribes, the native bands, um, they have tried to make these, these native tribes, native bands whole in, 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 in another fashion. Um, and in, in the grand tradition of, of liberal states and capitalism, that is to put in carve-outs in federal uh, contracting policies that say, well, geez, wow, you know, because we, um, you know, we, we, we killed and massacred you guys for, you know, for 300 years. How about now, uh, if there's a company, you know, if there's a company that is owned by you guys, you know, the remaining handful that are left, um, we'll give you first dibs on, on a federal contract. How about that? Yeah. And this is the, the Gurkha thing that Reconnaissuto was referring to. So basically, we're not saying, just in case anyone <laughs> might be raising an eyebrow here, we're not saying that like every single Native American reservation in the United States is a cesspit of crime and corruption and, you know, bio-warfare or whatever. We're just saying basically because these places have been granted this special status and at the same time a lot of the most of the people who live in them are kept in an extreme state of uh deprivation that makes them ideal for exploitation uh by you know certain government agencies now wackenhut enters this joint venture with the cabazon band but what we should probably also point out is that there's a, a very common saying in the, the national security community, which is that if you want a dirty job doing, 
you call Wackenhut. And the reason why is because Wackenhut, ever since its founding, which we don't need a really thorough history of it, but basically ever since its creation, Wackenhut has been a effectively a front and a subcontractor for the, the US intelligence community. We are not going to get into you know, an exhaustive rundown of the history of Wackenhut, but it's worth pointing out that William Casey, who at the time of the Cabazon joint venture in the early 80s was, you know, the new director of the CIA, prior to that, he had served as outside legal counsel for Wackenhut, and part of his job had entailed overseeing the paperwork, it said, for the Cabazon deal. Casey had also been a huge Reagan booster, you know, he was very attracted to his free market agenda. Wackenhut operated a revolving door between itself and the US intelligence community. Um, something that we're going to get into later in this series is the fact that Wackenhut had compiled a list of 2 million subversives in America. And it, you know, we have to assume it, it shared this list with, you know, the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, etc. This is very significant, as we're going to see in another couple of episodes. Oliver North had also begun building his own list of subversives. And I am very curious to know if he was, you know, sharing the workload, so to speak, with Wackenhut with regards to that. Anyway, during the Iran-Contra years while that scam was going on these guys sat on the board of directors at Wackenhut. you had frank carlucci former cia deputy director stansfield turner former cia director james joseph roley uh, former C secret service director clarence kelly former fbi director stansfield turner former cia director bobby ray inman former cia deputy director clarence m kelly former fbi director bernard adolf schreiber retired u.s air force general former member of the president's foreign intelligence advisory board Joseph Carroll, former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. It goes on and on and on. Now, in recounting his life story years later in that LA courtroom, Robert Booth Nichols admitted that he wasn't 100% sure he ever worked directly for the CIA. Now, I don't think he did work for them directly. I think he was an asset, a mechanic of some kind. And he seems to have functioned... Um, as, yeah, a fixer for the real intelligence operatives. But throughout his life, as we can see from his link to Wackenhut uh, and Fidco and Jaya Kinto and Meridian Arms, he is surrounded by people and institutions that are absolutely soaked in CIA syndicate and military connections. Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, I, I will say basically is not entering a joint venture with Wackenhut only. It is also entering this joint venture with elements of the the US deep state, I suppose. Again, an element of this story, the deep state and the wider story that we're telling, is 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 the privatization of functions of the security services. How do you take the operations of counterintelligence or espionage or something like that? And how do you make money off of those things? And this is one of the ways that these 
contractors and defense contractors have found a way into the fire hose of, of money that comes out of the United States federal government in the form of um, contracts. We talked about this, like this privatization, this outsourcing of the work of US intelligence in the late 70s in the casino uh, series, Safari Club. There are actually more connections to that that are going to crop up again and again as we go along uh, in this series. Wackenhut is also a really good example of it as well. So Danny began probing the names and connections that uh, RBN and Michael Riconosciuto were feeding him. And he, you know, he's scouring news archives for additional tidbits. He was bugging other reporters that he knew as well. He ran up huge phone bills. He traveled endlessly around trying to chase down leads and cultivate sources. And his friends and his family began to worry that he was getting in way over his head. Uh, Promise and the Inslaw case came to seem like a, a, a footnote to what he thought he was uncovering. And Reconosciuto, he left him behind as well and started to go more to IBN for his tip-offs and his leads. Now, this is all about to get hellishly complicated. So I really recommend, if you're listening to this, go to littlesis.org and search for a map that I made called Roots Out of Indio 1. Uh, you'll probably find my earlier attempt at it, but check out number one for now because it's it's much cleaner and believe it or not, it's actually much simpler. And use that to keep track of the names and connections as we proceed from here. So that's littlesis.org, roots out of India one. Are you ready, Ben? I think so. So we have some idea of why Cabazon was at the center of so much intrigue. Um, so yeah, as Ben said, the Cabazon Reservation is located in Riverside County in California. Uh, it's right next to Coachella. I'm sure international listeners will recognize that. And we need to bear in mind what Rico said in point three of his affidavit, as we've discussed, you know, regarding this sovereign status of Native American reservations. Uh, and, I, you know, I have no doubt that this is massively over-exaggerated, but certainly they would make an ideal place for something like a covert operation or operations. So there are a lot of Svengali, Randall Flagg type characters in this story. Uh, Dr. John Philip Nichols is one of the most colorful, and he seems to have been the underworld's route into Cabazon. Now, Back in 1977, Cabazon tribe numbered fewer than 30 members. 
and the reservation was in very dire financial straits. The chairman, uh, Joe Benitez, met Dr. Nichols at a seminar, business seminar, in the fall of that year. Nichols offered to serve as a financial advisor to the tribe, and he gave Benitez an inch-thick resume that was full of wild claims that impressed Benitez. So Nichols said he was an expert in social work and economic development. He said that he'd been a labor organizer in Milwaukee and that he had a PhD in economics. He said that he helped organize more than 2 million Marxist Catholics in Chile. He said that he had a doctorate in theology uh, from the Free Protestant Episcopal Church in Ontario. Now, that claim about Chile is pretty interesting in light of Rico's talk about his own role in the liberation theology movement in South America. So it's like a minor echo, you know, of Nichols' story. And you can't help but wonder, you know, is Rico piecing together his own biography from, you know, bits that he takes from others? And of course, you know, John Philip Nichols also claimed from time to time that he was a CIA agent. And what he really knew how to do was play the system to make money. And initial business ventures that he spearheaded at Cabazon included poker clubs and selling tax-free cigarettes. And when the cops shut that down, he switched to tax-free liquor. And his schemes actually paid off. The tribe was able to implement medical insurance plans and invest in real estate and other businesses. Now, the California state government came down hard on the Cabazon tribe's bingo and poker palace. And the tribe ended up taking the state to court and they won the case in the late 80s. And I'm told that the outcome led to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Nichols' goal soon expanded, though, because his aim was to transform Cabazon into a place for government outsourcing in order to land, you know, lucrative uh, public sector contracts. Nichols did have some very influential friends as well. G. Wayne Reader was a business associate of his who was good friends with Neil Bush, who was Poppy Bush's son, of course. Reader uh, was a rumored CIA operative, and he defaulted on $14 million in loans at Neil Bush's Silverado Savings and Loan Company. He was also crewed in with a guy called Herman K. Beeb, who was a financial advisor and money launderer for Carlos Marcello, who was the boss of the New Orleans Mafia. Beeb was also the financial manager for San Marino Savings and Loan. Nichols, this is John Philip Nichols, was also a business associate of Robert Fry, who was the Wackenhut vice president again. And in 1980 or 1981, they went to Quebec to try and buy out Valley Field Chemical Products Corporation. So the savings and loan scandal, uh, just as a side note, that is going to reappear throughout this series is far beyond the remit of tonight's episode. But the more that I'm reading about it, um, the more convinced I am that we need to try and cover it in depth at some point in the octopus. I'm just trying to find a way to make it, you know, interesting and not dry <laughs> because it's it's a lot of money and figures. Um, but there are spooks, there are politicians, there are mobsters from across the world, all entwined with each other and committing massive fraud at American SNLs, tens of billions of dollars just disappearing, you know. And then these guys are going back and collecting 
additional tens of billions in bailouts from the US government. And it's all bound up with Iran-Contra and the Afghan heroin pipeline and the coke coming out of South America. And once again, right at the center of it all is the Bush family. John Philip Nichols was in the empire building business. And in 1980, uh, using contacts supplied to him by Neil Bush and Wayne Reader, he partnered with Wackenhut Services to create this Cabazon Arms company. And this was the joint venture that Rico had spoken of. And other investors included Peter Zakoski, the husband of the mayor of India and the president of Arms Tech Ammunition. He was also connected to Earl Bryan's Hadron Incorporated. Paul Moraska, who was a friend of Reconosciuto's and a money launderer for the syndicate. Robert Booth Nichols, um, or at least Reconosciuto claimed he was. And Peter Zakoski, incidentally, also sat on the board of directors at IBN's Meridian Arms Company. Another partner in the Wackenhut-Cabazon deal was Glenn Shackley, who sat on the board of FIDCO with Robert Booth Nichols. Now, the purpose of this joint venture was to manufacture weapons and other military equipment and sell it to armies around the world. And in Rico's telling of the story, they were making much more than just guns. And this is why we brought up the bioweapons reference earlier. Because Rico says they were building prototype laser weapons and telecommunications equipment, but he has claimed that they were experimenting with fuel air explosives, which are thermobaric bombs um, that I th they use the surrounding oxygen to generate explosions. And uh, the joint venture was also researching bioweapons that were designed to target, allegedly, specific ethnicities. Now, I'm not saying he's telling you the truth. This is just what he told Danny and the Hamiltons. Now, what seems clear is that Cabazon was being used as some kind of money laundering and drug slash arms dealing hub. Uh, there were skim operations being run out of the poker and bingo halls, and there's some indication that the local cops were on the take. Now, we mentioned the sheriff's task force in the previous episode that had the reservation under surveillance, and the presence of Reconosciuto, who was a known drug manufacturer, together with the assortment of spooky financial wizards at the reservation, I would say this adds further grist to this notion, right? And there's a much stranger connection that opens up an entirely new part of the underworld, but we're not there yet. So ultimately, Rico's, you know, sci-fi decorations aside, the dirty job that Wackenhut had been tasked with here was, I think, primarily during this period of time to sell guns to the Contras, right? This is from Spire Magazine, quote, William Corbett, a terrorism expert who spent 18 years as a CIA analyst and is now an ABC News consultant based in Europe, confirmed the relationship between Wackenhut and the agency. For years, Wackenhut has been involved with the CIA and other intelligence organizations, including the DEA, he told Spy. Wackenhut would allow the CIA to occupy positions within the company in order to carry out clandestine operations. He also said that Wackenhut would supply intelligence agencies with information, remember the list of two million subversives, and that it was compensated for this in a quid pro quo arrangement. 
uh, with government contracts worth billions of dollars over the years. Now we bring in John Philip Nichols and this uh, plan of his to, you know, bring a lot of government contracting work to the reservation. It goes on to say, quote, we have uncovered considerable evidence that Wackenhut carried the CIA's water in fighting communist encroachment in Central America in the 1980s. That is to say, during the Reagan administration, when the CIA director was former Wackenhut lawyer, William Casey, as we've said, uh, the late super patriot who had a proclivity for extra-legal and illegal anti-communist covert operations such as Iran. Contra. Remember that when Casey was brought in as the new uh, director of CIA, the people in the know heralded it as a return to the, the swashbuckling days of Wild Bill Donovan, you know. Anyway, quote, in 1981, Berkman's, the CIA agent turned Wackenhut vice president, joined with other senior Wackenhut executives to form the company's special projects division. It was this division that linked up with John Philip Nichols in pursuit of a scheme to manufacture explosives, poison gas, and biological weapons, and then, by virtue of the Cabazon tribe's status as a sovereign nation, to export the weapons to the Contras. So they weren't just selling the Contras guns, if you take that um, as written. They were also making them poison gas and, and biological weapons as well. Michael Reconosciuto says that Aidan Pastore, uh, also known as Commander Zero, and Jose Cardell, together with Earl Bryan and Peter Videniecks, attended a weapons demonstration at a police firing range near the Cabazon Reservation in early 1981. Zakowski had made the necessary arrangements with the local cops, apparently. And we should point out, you know, in the interest of fairness, that Peter Zakowski swore under oath that while this weapons demonstration did happen, Earl Bryan never visited Cabazon Ranch. But that's not the same as saying he never visited the places where deals connected to the ranch were being conducted. So the House Judiciary Committee snagged a report from Riverside County PD that paints a different picture, to put it mildly. So one officer, Baird, was instructed to go undercover and pose as a soldier of fortune to ensure that Cabazon had all the necessary permits for the weapons that they were selling. And he made a note of everyone at the meeting at the firing range demonstration, and he ran the plate numbers as well where he could get them. And he listed Michael Reconosciuto, researcher for Cabazon Indians. By the way, I apologize for saying Indians so much instead of Native Americans. I am aware that, you know, I should be calling them Native Americans. It's just I'm reading a lot of quoted things, so I do apologize. Peter Zakowski, president of Arms Tech Coachella. John D. Van der Verke and a couple of his friends, uh, CIA research director for eight years. Earl Bryan, Wisconsin businessman and CIA employee. That is very interesting that Officer Baird lists him as such. Two Nicaraguan generals, Aidan Pastore and Commander Zero, and Jose Caldell, Commander Alpha. Raul Arana, Central Caribbean Research Procurement Front for Liberation of Nicaragua. Um, John Philip Nichols, Cabazon Indian manager. 
Wayne Reader, builder developer, arrived with Earl Bryan in a 1981 white Rolls Royce. Jimmy Hughes, security chief for the Cabazon Indians. Art Wellness, tribal chairman of Cabazon Indians. Scott Wellesley, United States Army. So naturally, Danny begins pulling on all of these different threads. Now we're told that this weapons deal fell apart in the end, we're told, but you know, that sounded like bullshit to Danny and it does to us, to be honest. It's more likely that after the first few shipments of hardware, the venture, if it did fall apart, it fell apart because of a bizarre spree of murders and busts connected to the reservation. So we have, again, Danny Casalero is looking into things connected to now. Again, he's heard about this, uh, this essentially a, 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 a hotbed of, of, of crime out there in the, uh, out there in the desert in Southern California. Um, and it's a lot of crime. And, and, and I think it's also interesting is it's not just, it's not, Rather, it is more than crime that would be difficult to explain to someone. Again, it's 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 not like we're talking about obscure stock swindles or point or basketball points shavings or or something like that, or even some of the you know more the more esoteric um, mob scams. One of the big ones was they would rip off uh, uh, gasoline how gasoline taxation you know taxes were paid. You know, they could, they could, they found a way into the steal that money. Have you seen A Most Violent Year? Have you seen that film? No, actually I haven't. It's, oh shit, what's the guy's name? He played Llewellyn Davis. Fuck man, I know this guy's name and it's just completely escaped me. It's Oscar Isaac. This is me from the future. Just dropping in to say it's Oscar Isaac that I was thinking of. Uh, anyway, it's a pretty good film. It's set in New York, like in the late 70s with the gasoline wars, where like the mob and legitimate gasoline suppliers basically went to war with each other. It's pretty interesting. Oh, wow. I'll have to look it up. But so so what Danny Casolaro begins to hear more about, um, shine the light on, you know, you know, uncover, however you want, it, you, you, you want to describe it, is gun running and dope smuggling and murders. Yeah, there are a lot of murders. Um, the most infamous is the triple homicide at Cabazon in July of 1981. Uh, Fred Alvarez, who was the tribal elder, a tribal elder, his girlfriend Patricia Castro and their friend Ralph Bozier were found shot to death, execution style, on the reservation in 1981. Now, Alvarez sat on the tribal council and he held the swing vote. And he'd initially welcomed John Nichols' presence, but as the assorted business schemes moved deeper and deeper into these very ethically dubious areas, Fred started to have doubts, you know. And at some point, he began talking to the local daily news about what was going on. And someone seems to have found out. There's an interesting anecdote about John Philip Nichols around this time. He was away on a business trip. And when he got back and found out about the murder, Apparently, he didn't look remotely shocked, but he did, in fact, make a call to somebody and informed them that it was done. Nobody knows who it was he called. Then, in January of 1982, Paul Maraska, he's the money launderer for the syndicate, 
and friend of Michael Riconosciuto, he was found hogtied and strangled to death in an apartment that he co-owned with Michael Riconosciuto. And he'd begun expressing reservations about this joint venture between Wackenhut and Cabazon. And he was threatening to go to the cops. He also had access codes, allegedly, for offshore accounts that were said to hold millions of dollars, supposedly earmarked for Wackenhut CIA covert operations. Mary Quick was the mother of a guy called Brian Weiss, who was another crony of Michael Reconosciuto's. Weiss had given her similar access codes for safekeeping um, to similar offshore accounts, if not the same ones, that the San Francisco Police Department suspected contained tens of millions of dollars in drug money. Now, Mary was on her way to a women's auxiliary meeting when she was shot twice in the back of the head in broad daylight. No motive was ever given, and the killing, as far as I know, remains unsolved. So there's a lot of murders, and there's a lot of corruption going on at this ranch and that corruption in turn connects to other scams and operations that are going on danny is in the secret city now he is fully locked in and traveling around those those streets and this is where robert booth nichols effectively becomes danny's like another Svengali figure, almost like another Randall Flag type person who's leading Danny deeper and deeper into this. I hate to say it, but into the wilderness of mirrors, you know. However, for all that, I think it is somewhat overcooked how credulous Danny was. You know, if you read like the Vanity Fair piece, the even the Village Voice piece, which is quite sympathetic to Danny, it's still there's an implication that Danny was just writing down everything that he was being told and believing everything, and that's not quite true. He was very skeptical uh, of much of what Michael Reconosciuto had to say, especially after the tape incident, which we discussed last episode. And his notes indicate that he thought that Robert Booth Nichols was a thug, ultimately, for all the the dapper three-piece suits that he wore and springing for dinner and flying first class. That seems to have been Danny's overriding impression that RBN was a thug. Death is, is as we say, it wasn't like Danny Casolero was, was, was just, you know, sitting at, at, you know, Robert Booth Nichols' feet and just and uncritically accepting everything that Robert Booth Nichols has to say. You could say yes or no, you know, was it reckless to tell, as, as we think we did, as, as we think he did at least, Robert Booth Nichols so much. But something that was probably reckless is that he started to bring in other people. So this would be the... Um... The time when he took a friend of his to meet RBN for dinner, and he only told the friend afterwards that he'd just spent an evening with um, a guy who was connected to the Gambino family and was an alleged CIA hitman. Um, friend was pissed. I can understand why. Well, we know it's, I believe it was in the Village Voice article. Um, the friend is is telling the the author of this article is that, I mean, again, the friend, once Danny told him, you know, the truth, it was, he immediately nailed what had just happened. Is is I believe the words was, I was gaffed and put out there for the octopus to eat me. So that Danny could, so that Danny could be there to see the gore. Yeah, I mean, 
that is unforgivably stupid. Um, I think when he was telling Ron Rosenbaum that story, this guy said he he threatened to kick Danny's ass, basically. Words to that effect. Uh, He was very, very angry about being put in that position. One of the reasons to bring this up, Danny Castellaro has things that are motivating his actions that are pretty damn serious. Again, as we opened, I believe, the episode with, it's, wow, geez, I need I need $170,000 by mid-September or I'm going to be thrown out of my house. Or or rather, or, or I'm going to have to go back to my family and get another loan. And I imagine he didn't want to do that, really didn't want to do that. And so Danny Castellaro is, I think, increasingly not losing his mind as 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 will be pointed to as will be you know explained in, in various articles or not you know um just doing stupid things for the sake of doing stupid things is that his situation is becoming more desperate and because of that he has to entertain desperate counsels yeah i mean you can if you remember the the incident we talked about where he was telling Robert Booth Nichols about his money issues and then Nichols offers to buy a stake in his house. I mean, that dissolves all boundaries between journalists and subjects right there. But it's a mark of, I would say, growing desperation. And then also this impression you get of Danny as 1991, especially the summer, grinds on, which is a mountain sense of paranoia, I would say, and a, a sense of claustrophobia coming from Danny. And... The chief reason for that is that first, Robert Booth Nichols seems to begin to turn on him and he starts first warning Danny to stay away from certain subjects and then outright threatening him. Not in such a way that would suggest he personally would kill Danny, but, you know, in such a way as to suggest that if you keep pulling on this thread, you'll upset some powerful people. And then the phone calls begin. Danny, the desperate author. Yes, he's a journalist, but his situation and his motivating factors are different from traditional journalists. It's not like Danny has a regular day job. You know, he's not someone that can be threatened with regular things. His finances are already in in a mess. Um, He's already been divorced. He's already staring destruction down. And that makes him desperate. And that makes him dangerous because it's not hope, but fear, which gives men wings. I think that something, if there's a thing that gets Danny killed in the end, whatever it is, I think it's that as Danny is growing more desperate and as his investigation is intensifying, is that he is beginning to frighten not just his family, but really the people that he is investigating. The people in the secret city. Exactly. In a way, we know this is happening because, as was just mentioned, someone is apparently caring enough to start threatening Danny's life over the phone. You can totally discount that Oh, it's just it's it's Danny Castellaro is, is has made this up and he's just telling other people about this. It's like no, um, we know that at least his uh, uh, again his lip his his maid and neighbor was receiving 
more received more than one of these. And they're all words to the effect of, if you keep pushing, you are a dead man. You know, uh, give up your inquiries, which are completely pointless. It's very explicit. Is stop, do, you know, we will kill you if you don't stop. And the thing is, is that Danny doesn't stop. He blurs right past it. He can't stop. He goes right past it. There's a, a really chilling story that his girlfriend Wendy told, which is that one night they were, I think they were watching a film, and he just turned to her um, out of the blue, a prop of nothing, and asked, will you kiss me when I'm dead? Which, imagine how scared you would be, you know, if, if your partner is talking like this and receiving these phone calls and going to dinner with <laughs> mafia money launderers and hitmen. Uh, I can only imagine the fear that must have been spreading uh, through his circle at this point. That fear emerges very much in the interviews with the people that are connected with Danny Casalero is that again, as this summer is, 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 is wrapping up as Danny's investigation is approaching the fateful moment when he walks through the, the door of a hotel in West Virginia and never emerges. His friends and family are saying, Danny, stop. Don't. This is this is this this is too big. This is this is too nasty. This is bad. You know, when people call you up and are threatening your life, um, you know, let's not be heroes here. You're you're supposed to stop. And I guess in a way it's like that's what is supposed to happen. Think of, you know, um, you know, the, you know, a, a million people in history who have received calls threatening their life from the security services or from the mob. All but a fraction of those people, they, they stop because that's what you do. It's like it's like, no, it's not worth it. You know, whatever it is, um, you know, but that's but the thing is, is that Danny couldn't stop. He was being driven, you know, but, you know, of his own choice or not to the completion, to the culmination point, you know, in this story. Yeah. And I mean, Ron Rosenbaum described how Danny's phone calls to him, they, they took on a different turn by the end of July. They, he says that a note of smug self-assurance began to creep in to Danny's voice. This sense that he was about to tie the entire story off and bring back the head of the octopus, as he put it. If we look at his travel itinerary, the places that he had planned, he had lined up to go to, he wasn't just walking into a lion's den, he was walking into a series of them. Um, and I mean, the first thing that stood out to me was, uh, so it says in his itinerary, the itinerary for research completion is Arkansas, Louisiana, and Florida. Uh, extensions of Barry Seal's operations and lengthy interview with Sarkis Sahanalian. Um, one week there, he's on about going to Lexington, Kentucky. I will explain why uh, in a moment. And he says to visit again with Ari Ben Benash. With Ari Ben Benash, yeah. And, and again, we we and we just started. So continue, Ghostman, continue. So uh, two days there, Denver, Colorado, to meet pilot Heinrich Rupp and businessman Bill Kilpatrick, three days. Las Vegas, to meet a closed source. Uh, Indio, California, to the Indian Reservation, to meet homicide investigators. Santa Monica and Long Beach, California, to meet one closed source, an armed specialist, Peter Zakowski. We've discussed him already. 
um, San Francisco to meet homicide investigators Portland, Oregon to meet with Richard Brenecki. Seattle to meet again with Michael Dangerman Reconosciuto uh, in his jail cell, presumably. I like that little touch of humor there. Yeah, if I can. Yeah, exactly. It's like in his jail cell, presumably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Guy's a jailbird. And then here's where it starts getting even wilder because then he's planning to go to Costa Rica for two days, Chile to meet Carlos Cardoon. Uh, two days there. Sydney, Australia to meet Bernie Horton and the Royal Commission investigators. I am, we should probably point out here that that is most likely because of the Nuggenhan Bank connection, which we are going to be getting into at some point in this series. It's, it's, it's also possible, however, um, that, uh, again, one of the destinations for the, the backdoored promise yeah, yeah. was Australia. Yeah. Um, and then, so he was planning seven days in Australia for that. And then Thailand, Burma, and Laos to meet with tribal leaders and scholars, 14 days. If, um, if I can, and I, you maybe were going to say this, but when he says meet with tribal leaders, uh-huh. you could probably put real big quotes about that. What, what he really means, or at least, you know, what I'm going to uh, you know, go on record as saying is that he was following, this was the golden triangle. He was following the dope trail. Yeah. You, the tribal leaders in those areas are the ones who were doing all the, the, the dope manufacturing and smuggling for the CIA. I'm, I'm in total agreement with you there. And then Danny is going to Kuwait city, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Tunisia and Israel 14 days. Then he's off to Brussels for two days. Belgium in 1991 is a fucking insane place to be asking questions about drug trafficking and the CIA and all the rest of it. Uh, And then he's going to Zurich one day, London two days, Quebec to meet Michael Hand. That's definitely uh, a Nugent Hand bank connection. Yeah, exactly. When I saw that, I just, I, I, uh, you know, I, I had to stop for a moment. I, you know, I was like, wow, I, I, I didn't realize Danny Casalero was going to chase down the Nugan Hand bank story far enough that he was actually going to talk to Michael Hand of, you know, he's the guy who contributes the name Hand to Nugan Hand. Um, <laughs> he's going to talk with this guy for two days in a foreign country. And then he's planning to wrap up this, this marathon with um, two days in Marion, Ohio, to meet Edwin Wilson uh, in prison. So... Yeah, I mean, it speaks to, beyond speaking to just what it was that he was prying into here, um, it also does speak to that thing you said before, Ben, about how uh, driven he was. Um, and obviously, none of that is cheap, these, uh, these distances that he's traveling. What we're, what we're not seeing is, is his earlier itinerary or itineraries. Um, I don't know if those exist uh, anywhere that he's broken out that he will have broken out in, in detail like this. Uh, but there is there isn't any uh, anything that doesn't that leads me to believe other than that he was essentially mirroring what we've just talked about in the months preceding. So in other words, we've you know he's been doing this stuff already for the better part of a year. And and again, he is out there rubbing shoulders with a lot, a lot of um, 
the, these are people I, you know, you see them walking down the street and you go and you, and you, and you turn your blinds down, you know, and he's not just meeting with, with one of these guys. It's, it's again and again and again, and it's over a span of time. Um, so I, I, I don't, I don't think it requires much, uh, you know, you know, credulity to say, it's like, yeah, you know, um, these people were probably also talking to each other. I mean, certainly, I mean, uh, and, and his, and Mike and, and Danny Casalero's name has got to have come up in, in at least one of those discussions that, Hey, yeah, I, you know, I just told my life story to a guy that's going to write a book. Um, you say, you say to your heroin smuggling partner. I think that's the thing that I keep returning to time and again, especially now I've seen the itinerary and you have to appreciate that Danny probably was fully cognizant of the danger that he was placing himself in. He's not like protected by any kind of institutional clerk here. He's not doing this on behalf of the New York Times or Time Magazine or something like that. He is out there completely on his own. And let's be honest, he's operating on the margins as well. And he's being overtly warned, threatened, in fact, to cease and desist and to stop asking these questions. And instead, he's gone hell for leather in the the opposite direction. He's booked a full round-the-world trip where he's going to take in the, the, the great and good of the, the international underworld. I can't stop thinking about it, how, yeah, he just throws himself willingly into this. But as much as we discussed, you know, all of these, these places and, and this around the world trip and, you know, you know, meeting the tribal elders in, in, in Laos to talk about how they work for the CIA and, and, you know, to swap stories about being in Chiang Kai-shek's army or whatever. It's a place that's on, that is not on this list that was his final destination. And the place where he was, as he, as he believed and as he told to other people, was going to, as I think the direct quote is, bring back the head of the octopus. Yeah, and this is the trip to West Virginia. So here you have Danny preparing to go to Martinsburg to meet this mysterious source of his. And from there, he's going to go to India to see the reservation for himself. And then he's going to travel the world, tying up the loose ends to wrap up his story. And he's thinking that once this is done, it's the big time. You know, the book deal, possibly a film, possibly directed by Oliver Stone, so on and so forth. And at the same time, according to Ari Ben Menashe, two FBI agents are also en route to meet Danny. And these feds come from Kentucky. And this may or may not be significant because one of the most intriguing connections in this part of the story, the one that we teed up earlier, comes by way of correspondence that the researcher Sherry Seymour discovered in Michael Riconosciuto's personal papers. She found a letter from Cabazon tribal leader Art Wellness to a guy called Mike McClure that was dated March 1982. McClure is a fairly obscure figure in the history of American organized crime now, but Danny would have been familiar with the organization he worked for because it was rumored 
to be tied up in coke and gun trafficking with the New York Mafia families, the Contras, and the CIA. Additionally, McClure himself had made the papers because his wife, Bonnie Lynn, had shot a state prosecutor called Gene Berry in the face on Mike's orders way back in 1982. Mike McClure was an enforcer for Executive Protection, or The Company, which was a paramilitary organized crime outfit made up of ex-cops, feds, and DEA agents. Danny will have known that the company had been connected to Cabazon, and the Mafia, and the Contras, and possibly the CIA. And here he is, setting off for Martinsburg on August 6, 1991, to possibly meet two feds from the Kentucky field office. And after he leaves his house, an unknown man calls and tells his maid, Olga, I'm going to cut his body up and throw the pieces to the sharks. And this is the first of five phone calls that she receives that day alone. By August 10th, Danny Casolaro is dead. He's found, as we said, first episode with his wrist slashed in a motel bathtub. So next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the company and various other networks that Danny was investigating. We're going to discuss his conception of the octopus, and we're going to try to piece together the fragments of Danny Casolaro's last days.